You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, all of you fine people out in the internet era digital world that we all exist in. I'm coming at you through all the ones and zeros that are being put into your, your head. It's weird to think about it in that term, right? Like, this is all digital. I, man, it's wild. But what is also wild is I had a discussion with a person that could not have been more coincidentally timed, but his name is Brian Cook. I spoke with him weeks before this most recent uh, botch news came out in regards to them reissuing their catalog on uh, Sergeant House, but uh, I wanted Brian on because he recently released an absolutely incredible solo record that I think more people need to pay attention to. The record, or the, the, the moniker in which he plays under, is called Torment and Glory, and the record is called We Left a Note with an Apology. And it is a damn good record. I uh, honestly did not even know that it existed up until a couple of months ago. It just came out in August, so it's not like, you know, this is something that's existed for years. But it was, uh, yeah, it just really, I don't know what to describe it as besides just a very contemplative record. It makes you really sit down, concentrate on what Brian is accomplishing in this music. And, you know, it's got a lot of different things going on, but I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, he also played in Roy, plays in Russian circles. He is a very prolific musician, and uh, I'm so excited to have him on. And that's what we do. I mean, I know I say that about everybody, but (laughs) genuinely, I'm excited to have these people on the show. That's why I bring them on this podcast to begin with. But um, yeah, we didn't even talk about, you know, Botch re-releasing their stuff because that did not, that was not even part of the radar. And I wasn't going to sit there and punish him for like an hour being like, hey man, so is is Botch going to reunite? Because that literally is what everybody asks him in almost every single interview. And I wasn't about to do that. I ask him about a lot of random Botch stuff, but um, anyways... That's neither here nor there. We get to talk to Brian Cook, and that is what's important. You can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Got another uh, you know, few emails from people suggesting ideas or just giving like, digital high fives. I always appreciate you reaching out and saying you find value in this thing. It makes the world feel less alone because at the end of the day, I am just talking into a microphone, into a computer by myself as we speak. I mean, my dog is sleeping next to me, but this is a solitary environment. So anytime you get the reach out, it's always appreciated. And you can also leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. I know you hear it about this all the time, but it does make a difference. And then tell your friends about this very show. If they like punk or hardcore or anything, any of the subgenres <laughs> attached to it, they probably should be listening to this show. Not just because it's a good show, <laughs> but just because it's probably relevant to their interests. But anyways, let's talk to Brian. So much fun. I really enjoyed this conversation because he got to let me bounce around to all these places where I could tell he has not been (laughs) in quite some time. It was really fun. And plus, like I said, listen to the new Torment and Glory record. You can find it anywhere you find music. It is a really, really good listen. So here's Brian, and I will talk to you at the end of the episode.
being a hardcore kid of a certain age, uh, you know, botch loomed large in my uh, hardcore upbringing, as it were. And it's funny because I, I reflect back on how I got into botch. And I think people from the 94 to 97 range got exposed to botch on your O Fortuna cover, <laughs> which, which as like, I was reflecting on it. I'm like, it's weird because they're like, clearly there was no idea of like a single within the context of hardcore music. Cause that didn't exist. But like that song was almost, it felt like inescapable for anybody that liked aggressive music. And I just remember being like, wait, this is a classical song. Like, this is crazy. I don't understand this. Um, I still like in existing alongside heavy music for quite some time. I have no clear idea of why you guys decided to do that. I've even had Dave on the show as well and like did not pick his brain about it, but I was like, why? Yeah. So I, why did you do that, Brian? <laughs> I don't even really remember. And I think it was actually, Dave, I'm not sure if you talked to Dave Rowland or Dave Knudsen. I think maybe it was Dave Knudsen's idea. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I really don't remember what the context of it was. I know when we were doing that seven inch, uh, we were kind of, we we're kind of changing up our sound a little bit. We were kind of moving away from like more of a sort of traditional, like early nineties metallic hardcore sound into like a bit more of a, I don't know, kind of noisy and, uh, yeah, I hesitate to say experimental because I don't think it really qualifies as experimental. But you know, experimental to teenagers, where it felt like we were trying to do something sort of new in that that era. And uh, yeah, it, the songwriting was just slow because we kind of knew we wanted to do something different and new. But we, you know, we, we were it was more of like a negating process. You know, where it's like, well, we know we don't want to do this, and we don't want to do this. Like, what's sort of left over? So I, I think we were struggling to really come up with material that we were all really happy about. And at the same time, you wanted to fit as much material onto the seven inch as possible. So right. <laughs> it's like, well, like I don't think anyone's done like a hardcore version of a classic opera piece. So I guess, yeah, well, why not? Let's try it and see how that goes. Um, and I, I remember, I mean, it existed for obviously a long time after you put out that seven inch where people, I know you experienced this. We're screaming it at shows <laughs> between your songs and your guys that are like, we're not play. We haven't played that song in years. We're not playing it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think we only really played it like, oof, maybe two or three times. And, and we sort of had this, this rule that we would only play it. If someone brought a gong to the show, um, which is basically our way of saying like we were never going to play it. But then every once in a while, someone would roll up with a gong <laughs> and it was like, fuck. All right. I guess everyone fucking do a quick van rehearsal. So we remember how to play Oh Fortuna because there's a gong tonight. So <laughs> that that's pretty cool. Like just that notion of the, you know, crowd interaction, even if it's like, you know, 20 people at a show, like clearly if they were, invested enough in your band to be able to know that they needed to bring equipment like that, you know, that says something. <laughs> yeah. Weird time. That was pre-internet too. So I'm not even sure how the word got around with that thing. They must've said something in a zine, but I remember like playing a Nashville show and, and kids rolled up with a, with a gong. Damn. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, I guess, uh, I guess what we get, what we paid for. <laughs> exactly. And the reason that I find it so interesting is because to your point, like the, 
you know, we were in the era of the infancy of the internet, but it seemed like, you know, every, uh, you know, mix CD or mix tape, like contained that even for people that didn't necessarily like heavy music because it was so, you know, different. And that uh, novel in like, an, you know, in a non like joke song way manner, but like novel from that perspective. And so I, I'm guessing like you probably didn't notice that until maybe much later, or you did notice kind of like right away after you put up that seven inch that a lot of people were like, Oh, Hey guys, that was a really cool thing you did. I mean, uh, this is kind of news to me <laughs> actually. No, that, if, if it is, then that's, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm the first person to bring that up to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, cause I mean, I know, you know, that's the danger of whenever you do a cover, that's, it, you know, something that's instantly recognizable to a lot of people, uh, then people latch onto it. So, you know, I was like, there's definitely a contingent of people that were really into like, you know, we did a rock lobster cover for a friend's compilation. Oh yeah. All about, all about friends comp. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> remember that one. Like, oh, no one's ever going to hear this. Like this, this is kind of fun. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, every show there's someone yelling out rock lobster. And it's like, yeah, that's with Ofortuna. But, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, it's not something that people have, like no one's making me a mixtape with, with one of our songs on it. So I guess I'm sort of, you know, not, uh, that's true. You're not the target audience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, not entirely aware of that phenomenon, but it's, it's, it's cool to hear. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, yeah, I will definitely mention that fact <laughs> that it was, I mean, at least in the, uh, you know, within the Southern California hardcore scene, which is, you know, where I reside, it, it definitely felt like people, knew you guys for that and then obviously the fact that you played a lot of shows around here you know in those uh early days and even you know towards later era of the band but uh yeah it just it's interesting when you had bands that had had the ability to have that calling card initially to get people to pay attention and then on top of it be like oh yeah like that's that that overall seven inch is really good you know but you got me with the cover initially yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh I'll, I'll pick on some more threads about, about that a little bit later but Reflecting on you as a person, I know you were, uh, were you actually born and raised in Tacoma, right? No, I was, I was like a military kid. So I was, I was born in Kansas and then bounced around, uh, kind of all throughout my childhood. Um, didn't move to Tacoma until I was in my sophomore year of high school. Okay. But prior to that, it was like a year or two in respective cities. Yeah. Like between the time I was born and kindergarten, we went from Kansas to uh, Washington state to Washington, DC. Then uh, I started kindergarten in Hawaii and I, we actually lived in Hawaii from the time I was in kindergarten until my first year of high school. Then we moved to Tacoma. And uh, so yeah, most of my formative years were, were in Hawaii. That's uh, I mean, that's interesting for a multitude of reasons. I know the, the, you know, military brat lifestyle doesn't give you a lot of roots, but at the same time, it sounds like you were able to at least build some semblance of normalcy within the context of living in Hawaii. Were you on the big Island? Were you on Oahu? Where were you? Uh, I was on Oahu. So yeah, we were actually in Kailua, which is now kind of, you know, a, a popular tourist destination, but from 1982 to 1992, when I lived there, it was just kind of like a sleepy little, <clears throat> little beach town that, you know, bordered uh, a Marine base. And on the other side of the Island, there was the, the army base and my dad was army. So uh, we lived off base while we were there. So, 
yeah, from the time I was like kindergarten to, to, you know, starting high school, even though I was a military kid, I didn't really live the average military kid's life because it was off base and, you know, it was 10 years in the same location. So it was, it was a bit of a major uh, upset when, you know, after that first year of high school, it's like, all right, now we're going to move to Tacoma where it rains <laughs> every day and it's cold. And, you know, now we're going to live on a military base. And, you know, that was kind of a, a big adjustment. It was a rough, oh, I can imagine. Rough first year. And then after that first year there, met uh, Dave Knutson in our, I think it was in like a trigonometry class or something. And that's when Botch kind of started. And yeah. Sure. It did, uh, you know, were you a surfing kid in Hawaii? Like, where did you kind of, you know, sort of pick your spots while you were over there? I was, you know, I wish I was, a, had been a surfer kid. I was like a skateboard kid. And in mm-hmm. my adolescent mind, there was like a huge division there, even though, you know, I think in a lot of places, like in California, I think, you know, the cultures sort of intersect a bit more, uh, in, in Kailua, it felt like you were either one or the other. You're either a surfer or you're a skater, but you, you didn't do both. Was, yep. You know, kind of one of those dumb click things. And now it's like, wow, that was fucking stupid. <laughs> I should have should have embraced both. That would have been cool. When I had right. Childhood spent on the beach instead of like, you know, wearing flannel shirts because, you know, you saw again Kurt Cobain wearing one, <laughs> like sweating your ass off while you're skating. Flannel shirt in Hawaii. <laughs> Yeah, it's like sure. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I I missed out on that, but um, yeah, you know, I I was able to kind of get into some of the punk subculture stuff while I was in Hawaii, and that really happened through skateboarding. You know, it's like the Thrasher magazine music section, and you know, the Sessions catalog with all the the punk bootleg shirts that they sold, and you know, that was that was my early education and. Uh, into underground music was all through skateboarding. Sure, sure. That was the the pipeline of discovery. Yeah, and it, it always felt like with the surfing culture, it was way more about like reggae music, or at least in Hawaii, it was. And so it was, you know, I've, I've grown to really love a lot of reggae, but you know, again, as an adolescent, it was like, oh no, that's that's for potheads and surfers. Like, you know, I was all about minor threat and skateboarding, so it was. Right. <laughs> you really had to draw those definitive lines. Yeah, it was a very with, binary, a very yep. binary time. <laughs> of, totally. Yeah. It's either black or white. And then you, there, the shades of gray, like you wouldn't even be able to pick that color out. You're just like, no, it's either this or that. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and um, so knowing that, actually, are you an only child? No, I got uh, two brothers. Okay. And so you're the baby of the bunch? I am the middle child. Okay. So you were constantly looking for attention. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Is that the, is that the, is that the, I, I, I think it's like, it goes oldest child is the one that causes the most trouble because they're the first on the scene. And then the middle one's trying to find their identity. And then the youngest one is like completely ignored. Yeah. I mean, if you're <laughs> typifying it. <laughs> okay. okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So were, you know, did you, I guess, find yourself like caring about school? Like what sort of, uh, I guess, life path was uh, revealing itself to you? I mean, clearly, like that doesn't make sense when you're 11 or 12. But, you know, what what sort of roads were you getting into besides skateboarding? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, now that I'm older and able to reflect on it, I think there's, uh, I think there's a lot happening subconsciously with being a kid who hits adolescent and having sort of the first realizations of like their sexual orientation and maybe not being like the, the normal, <laughs> what people would normally consider normal for sexual sure. orientation. So I think that was kind of, you know, a thing at 12 where you're still like, Hmm, this, I feel like I'm not developing the way other people are. I feel like my interests are not where other people's interests are. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the attraction to punk music was really just the, the freak flag aspect of it and being like, Oh, okay. Like I already feel like I'm sort of exist on the periphery of, you know, normal life on some level because I have this secret that I'm holding back from. And, uh, you know, I think the fact that punk was, you know, so much, there's so much emphasis placed on, you know, non, nonconformity and, you know, you know, not caring about, you know, outdated etiquette and, and, you know, the status quo and all that, you know, the, the, the standard rhetoric of, you know, rebellious punk music. I think that wasn't just exciting because uh, it's, you know, appeals to teenage rebellion. I think it was actually felt like important to me because it was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is the only kind of affirmation I'm really getting um, for as, as like an outsider, you know, or someone that's, you know, a sexual deviant or whatever. Like right. Things you're, you know, being told by conservative teachers and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that kind of, I think that was definitely not something that I was aware of on a immediate level, but in reflection, it's like, Oh yeah, I think that really kind of guided my path in a lot of ways. And I think too, just, you know, a lot of the, you know, existing in the, late eighties, early nineties. And in this era where there was a lot of visibility for gay people, but it tended to be more focused on, you know, the HIV AIDS crisis and, you know, uh, sort of cultural stereotypes that were used as, you know, for the sake of comedy and whatnot. Um, you know, I think that had a big impact on, on, shaping my development as an adult. Cause it's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm a punchline, you know, <laughs> like I don't feel like, uh, I'm like a stereotype or, or anything like that. So then that makes it even all the harder to figure out where you fit in. Cause it's like, well, if I, if I'm not like, a, you know, someone from the Broadway play rent, you know, that if I don't identify with that, then, but I don't identify, you know, with, uh, you know, my average peer or classmate, you know, like where do I fit in? And, and, sure. And again, that, that kind of led me to, to into punk music. Yeah, no, I appreciate you articulating that. Cause I, I think it is important to understand the different, um, you know, variations of where people find their communities and especially within punk and hardcore, because it is such a, you know, I mean, a lot of people's experiences are homogenous in regards to like, I don't feel like I gel well with this and I like aggressive music, but then, you know, the different 
shades within that particular scene that can be welcoming or on the flip side, unwelcoming. Cause I know that's actually something I was going to bring up in regards to, I know you've articulated the experience of, you know, going to see undertow at our early show and, you know, having homophobic slurs just, you know, because that was of that time where people would, you know, say all of those things because they thought it was an insult and funny at the same time. And then, you know, Pettybone and the rest of the guys, you know, kind of stood up against that. And that was informative for you. But I think that that notion that not only are you trying to find yourself within the context of the quote unquote real world, but then you're like, well, I know that I fit in better here than anywhere else. So I'm going to lean into this, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, and like hardcore for me was super important. And, you know, even today as a, as a 44 year old adult, like hardcore is still important. Even, even if I don't track it, you know, and it's, with the same devotion I did as a, as a 15 year old. Um, and I know, you know, it's, it's tough to be a hardcore <laughs> kid at 44. Now when like so many of these bands that you looked up to haven't, haven't aged super well, you know, and it's, uh, you know, like the, was it the Thompson square park hardcore show in New York, where was, you know, there's all this sort of, anti-mask, anti-vax <laughs> attitudes yep. circulating with it. Anti, anti-government. I think that's how they're labeling it. Yeah. yeah it's still, <laughs> yep. oh, this is like the worst possible manifestation. If, if this is really just anti-establishment, this is like the worst possible manifestation. <laughs> totally. That you could possibly pick for like right. dance. But even, you know, like the, you know, like, like Chokehold, you know, Chokehold was a super progressive political hardcore band from Toronto who were, you know, vegan and, you know, like super outspoken on a bunch of progressive issues. And then they come and they do a reunion, you know, like five years ago or so. And, you know, there's like a, I don't even remember what, what the scenario was, but there was some controversy about the guitar player punching a trans person and like some all lives matter slogan being shouted from the stage. And it's like, what? How, how did, how did this happen? Like, who are these people? You know, like I thought chokehold was like, like, in, like this, uh, super progressive anarchist band, but they're, it's like, they're, they haven't like checked in on, on, on the news in 20 years or something. Um, so I feel like there is like this, a lot of reckoning and reflection on, on hardcore and how, you know, maybe all the sort of progressive, and idealistic stances that, you know, were sort of being talked about within that community back in the nineties was, was, you know, it wasn't as progressive as everyone makes it out to be. And, you know, I think that's, that's a fair discussion to have, but at the same time, it's like, for me as a kid in the nineties, it seemed like one of the few sort of communal civic, uh, engagement options available to me as, as a teenager that that was principled and that did stand for something and that like you know may have been very homogenous in terms of being kind of a you know straight white kids you know white boys you know is at least trying and at least aware of you know like misogyny being a huge factor in our society you know and like having discussions about that, you know, it was aware that homophobia was fucked up and there was discussion about that. And, 
you know, it felt like way more progressive than any other options that were pre- presented to me as a teenager. And, uh, I think that's, I think that's something important to address in conjunction with all the sort of reexamination of, of those bands in that era in, in the modern times. It's like, you can't strictly look at it through the lens of 2021, you know, this is a different time period. And, here we go. Band merch. It's incredibly important to you. It should be, right? I mean, I know you don't have to like collect hundreds and hundreds of band t-shirts, which is what I've personally done, but you can have a select few and let rockabilia.com be the place where you buy that select few pieces of merch. Because first of all, I'm going to give you 10% off by using this code 100 words or less. That's the number 100 words or less. You can probably figure out how to spell that, but if you're having problems, you can always reach out to me <laughs> in any event. Rockabilia is all officially licensed merch. That means the bands get paid. None of this bootleg stuff that the bands don't see a dime from because let's be honest, independent bands are not making money very many other places. And this is a great way to support them and, uh, you know, support an independently owned business. There's so much virtue that comes out of this purchase that I can't even begin to tell you about it, but I try every week in these beautiful ad reads, but... (laughs) 100 words or less. That is the promo code. That gets you 10% off, and that will get you some fancy new merch shipped right to your door, and uh, you'll look that much cooler because of it. So thank you to Rockabilia. Again, go to rockabilia.com, use that promo code, 100 words or less, 10% off. Enjoy what you get. Well, and and plus to your point, just the notion of being able to bring forth and articulate ideas that you were not getting presented in any other medium. It's not like schools are talking about, you know, veganism and animal rights or whatever. It's like, when you, when you, yeah, it's like when you first heard about those things, you were just like, dude, not only is this, you know, counterculture and revolutionary, but like I can actively participate in it. And that is unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, in the nineties, you know, hardcore wasn't one thing. And I think maybe that's the important distinction to make where, you know, you could, there was, you know, floor punch out in New Jersey who were, you know, like just brutal raw dudes and, you know, maybe, not the most enlightened people, but you know, it's, it was, you know, that was certainly one aspect of hardcore. And then, you know, you could, on the other end, you could have something like spit boy or, you know, Los Cruz where it was like, you know, very socially conscious and, you know, like definitely, you know, represented a a broader, uh, you know, broader diversity. And, uh, you know, I, I was, definitely more on team Spitboy in Los Crudos than, than team. Right. Yeah. You mean you didn't want to hang out with one life crew? That's kind of weird. Yeah. I'm just I mean, you know, I, honestly we had the one life crew demo cause we botch played with integrity on the, uh, when systems overload came out and, uh, sure. Chubby fresh from one life crew was playing drums for him and he was selling like he was selling a one life crew demo at the integrity merch table. So we were just like, Oh, well this, a guy from integrity will check it out. And it was just like, it was like a live set that they were, they recorded and, you know, were selling as a demo. And the between song banter was just like <laughs> comedy gold. Like it was like, we listened to it constantly just cause it was like, just like, is this, is this real? This can't possibly be, real. this has to be scripted. Like, 
<laughs> totally. It was amazing. Um, wow, that's incredible. I've never heard of the. Uh, I never heard the the demo being a live set. That yeah, I feel like it, that has to be on YouTube somewhere. That's unbelievable. Yeah, oh, it must be. I, I I feel like I've I looked for it on Discogs a while back. You know, cause, cause it, right. It exists anywhere. It must be on Discogs, but I don't remember seeing it. So, well, it's like the. Uh, the, I, I definitely remember the legend of them in regards to they were, uh, if I'm not mistaken, calling themselves Cigar Edge, where <laughs> they were, were straight edge except cigars. And I was like, dude, such a, such a good move. <laughs> but anyways. You know, that, you know, they at least had that in common with Botch. Because I remember, you know, Botch was never like a I died in the wool straight edge band. But at various points in time, you know people did claim edge in the band, but like, yeah, towards the end of, sure. well, you know, cigars, like, you know, like Bill Clinton said, like, like, you're not, if you don't inhale it, then is it really even a drug? You know? So, totally. Yeah. What? There's a sliding scale for this stuff. And I think, you know, if we do this, like, this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was the beginning of, of the end of any affiliation with straight edge. It was, it was the cigar. It wasn't like <laughs> right. pots or beer bongs. It was like, huh? I don't know. Let's try cigars. It seems cool. Yeah. I don't know this, this seems reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess too, just based off of, uh, you know, your experience and clearly seeing where your life path uh, headed you down, there was no hope for the uh, military being a part of your life. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No interest. Well, it's funny, you know, because I was, uh, you know, I was a teenager during the whole don't ask, don't tell, uh, you know, sort of debate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's now we look back on it and you know, people are like, Oh my God, like, I can't believe how like awful this was to the gay community. But, you know, as a teenager living on a military base, I was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm telling everyone at this point, like I've got army recruiters calling me every day. And it's like, I'm just, I'm just coming straight out and telling them I'm gay. So they fucking leave me alone. You know, it's like it, it, uh, it was definitely, I wanted no part in military life after uh, living on a military. Base. Sure. So no. Right. You're like I saw. I saw the lay of the land. Not for me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, why did you? Uh, why did you gravitate towards bass? Was it simply because you tried guitar and you were like, oh, I kind of know how to play that, but bass is easier? Or what was the vibe there? No, uh, it was why. Um, and I'm I'm left-handed. And I didn't think I was going to be right. able to find a left-handed instrument anywhere in Hawaii. So uh, I figured I'd just go right-handed, but playing guitar right-handed seemed too complicated. So bass seemed like, you know, it se- seems like I could manage my way around four strings. Um, did, you, did you do anything else with your right hand? Were you uh, ambidextrous at all, or this was this simply you just forced yourself to learn right-handed? I just sort of forced myself to learn. But you know, at, at that point, it was Hawaii, so you know, in, in grade school with music classes, we did we practiced like the ukulele, and there was never enough left-handed ukuleles for all the left-handed kids. So eventually, you just learned all the rudiments of ukulele on the right hand, and you know. So I think there was like some early training from that. Um, Got it. And then, but there's things now where it's like, I don't, like when I go bowling, it's like, I have no idea which hand I'm supposed to use with bowling. Cause I'm <laughs> with both. like a lot of like weird throwing a Frisbee, you know, swinging a bat. Like I have no idea. I'm not sports inclined anyway. So totally. Yeah. You're like, like I don't even, right. 
yeah. I don't even know where to begin. Like, should I hold it here? Should I do it here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, re- reflecting on, you know, your early experiences within, you know, punk and hardcore. And once you started to really become, you know, more immersed in understanding that there is a local scene, there are local bands. And like you mentioned, or like I mentioned with your experience at that, uh, undertow show and seeing there was a scene, what, um, was it one of those things that you got captured by the idea of being in a band sort of right away when you were in the Tacoma, Seattle area, or did that kind of, you know, reveal itself slowly over time? Yeah. I mean, I see, I bought a bass when I was 14 and I was still in Hawaii and, you know, some friends and I had a, had a band. Um, so when I moved to, to Washington, you know, the one really exciting thing was that all of a sudden it's like, you know, Tacoma's really close to Seattle, you know, Tacoma had seaweed, which was a band I was already a big fan of even before moving to Washington. Um, so it definitely seemed like, you know, if you wanted to play music, it was definitely better to be in Washington than Hawaii. So that was super exciting, but it still took, you know, a year before I could find people to play with. And, you know, on the military base, there was no one to play music with, you know, it, you know, I didn't have a driver's license, so I was kind of just stuck there. And yeah, and then met Dave in a trigonometry class and, you know, he was a fan of a lot of similar heavy bands that, that I liked. And yeah, that became that. Nice. Nice. Uh, please reveal the name of your uh, first band that you played in Hawaii. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason that I would put you on the spot like that is because most likely I would be able to tell what the band sounded like based on the name. Oh, gotcha. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to even say it only because I can't imagine it's okay. that there's any evidence of it existing anywhere. You know, this is like one of the, maybe the few, you know, one of the perks of not, starting out uh when the internet was a thing or there's i don't think there's any document of us of course but whatever may exist would be incredibly embarrassing so i'd rather just not give any uh, no understood understood completely but uh but yeah we were yes like i'll yeah we were just a shitty punk band that like we didn't even know about power chords it was like literally like like the shags or something just like (laughs) like the most rudimentary knowledge sure. of how an instrument works um, is bad. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, once the, I mean, it's been well documented uh, in regards to, you know, the formation of botch. So I'm not going to, you know, really hit on a lot of those elements, but, you know, as you guys started to, uh, you know, pick up momentum in regards to, you know, touring and being able to, you know, sign with Hydrahead and have some sort of national presence. How, how did, uh, you know, you personally and, you know, maybe holistically the band operate in regards to the business aspect of it? Like, you know, even though you were operating, you know, on a different level than, you know, your quote unquote career bands or whatever, you guys were still having to make decisions on like, oh yeah, like we're getting paid for this show. Like, what do we use this money for? Um, you know, so how is the, how is the business stuff sort of mixing up in things with botch? Well, you know, it was still a lot of, uh, you know, DIY shows where, you know, the tickets were just a few bucks, you know, and, you know, the first few tours sure. we went on, we didn't have guarantees. So it was just, you know, 
not uncommon to get paid like 30 or 40 bucks. And that was, you know, all you had to work with, you know, or you know, plus, you know, whatever you made from selling seven, of right. these, which didn't have the greatest profit margin, you know, and t-shirts and, you know, with t-shirts, it was, it was hardcore. So you weren't expected to like do a huge markup on them because, you know, you weren't expected to make money on anything. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was tough, but, uh, sure. We were lucky and, you know, it was an era where gas was under a dollar a gallon. So you could, you could make it work. And, you know, we relied on the network of staying at people's houses and, you know, you only got a hotel room if you didn't have any other options. And, you know, I think we occasionally did per diems where, you know, people would get five bucks a day or something, but, uh, you know, generally we just couldn't really afford that. So we, uh, you know, the, the finances were tight. Uh, but usually we were able to come home and, you know, everyone was able to get like a month's worth of rent. So that was always pretty crucial. And, you know, if, if you had a couple hundred bucks to pay your bills, then, you know, you could go back to work and get started on your next paycheck. So that by the time the next month rolled around, like you're, you know, we're able to pay that and, you know, it, it worked, you know, sure. it was fine. It was, you know, it was the nineties. We were college students, you know, it was, it, it, it all worked out. And then, you know, it wasn't until Romans came out that I think, uh, we started making a little bit more money. We were able to like get guarantees where it was like, all right, we're definitely getting a hundred dollars tonight. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, and you know, Right. It was, it was on Romans. It was the first time where, you know, people would buy merch before we played, you know, which was like a crazy thing where it's like, Oh, these people know who we are. Like they came here with money to buy merch. They're not, we're not one of like five bands on a bill. And we're just hoping that someone like sees it. It's like, Oh, this, this seems cool. Like I'll buy a seven inch. You know, it's like people are coming out, you're selling an album. Um, you know, at that point we would, we would come home and be like, oh, okay, well now it's, now we came home with like a thousand bucks and my rent's, you know, $200 a month. So it's like, I actually got like a few months worth of rent and bills covered and that's super exciting. Um, but you know, it never really got beyond that for us. You know, I think, you know, once we sort of announced that we were done, then, you know, the handful of shows that we had on the, you know, for the remainder of our, of our tenure were, were pretty lucrative, but you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't something you could live on today. <laughs> so yeah, you were ending. Yeah. R- right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. And, and I think that's, yeah. And I, I think that's kind of why, I mean, a lot of people reflect on, you know, the legacy of that particular band of being like, like, Oh, what could have been, but you know, I, I think it's one of those things where you guys, did a lot with the quote unquote limited means that existed for bands, you know, of that genre during that time. It's like, you know, you guys were able to, I mean, the fact that you put out as much music as you did was, was in and of itself a feat, you know? Well, I think it was tough too, because that, you know, we never had like a coherent vision of what we were trying to do. You know, it was more, you know, we were hardcore kids, but, uh, you know, a couple of the guys in the band, not, not necessarily me, but like Tim and, and, and Dave Knudsen were, you know, like pretty like badass musicians who actually like knew some things about music theory and technique and all that. So, you know, I think 
for them, it was important to, you know, to, to flex those, those abilities a little bit, you know, there, there was also at the same time a, a rule where it's like, you know, any, any, uh, any given song should really only showcase like 10% of your ability. Like no one, no one wants to hear a song where you're just like showing off a hundred percent of the time. So it's, you know, I think those dudes were interested in, in making music that was interesting and, and challenging and a little, you know, a little difficult and, and strange, um, you know, as, as like a reimagining of hardcore, but, but, but pushing it forward in some sort of new and unexpected ways. And, that was about the extent of the vision. And then, you know, for, for we are the Romans, I think we all kind of locked in and, and, you know, we're all sort of, I don't know. I think we were all in sync for that time period. And it was, we were able to come out with a lot of material that we were all happy about. But after that, it was, yeah, it was a lot harder to figure out what we wanted, you know, and it was, it was, I think, you know, Dave was, already kind of starting to write things that would eventually become a part of the minus the bear sound. And, you know, I was, you know, never someone to do, do a lot of contributions to the band. But when I did, you know, it was something like Afghanistan where it was, you know, of a, of a different sound and timbre. So, you know, I think we were all just trying to figure out what we wanted and it, I think it just kind of came to the realization that maybe it needed to involve different people. So. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It was reaching its logical end creatively. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and then also kind of in reflecting, uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, bands that you've played in, uh, I mean, I've basically personally followed you throughout all of your musical projects, you know, like Roy, these arms are snakes, everything you've done have been like, Oh yeah. Anything that Brian's involved in, like I'm, I'm, I'm listening, tell me more. Um, but specifically with these aren't snakes and and roy uh, that was at that era where you know bands of the independent you know music variety were actually being able to figure out quote-unquote livings for themselves um and you know trying to make it whatever that meant um and, and i think both of those bands in particular from a professional perspective were um you know, had the potential, but were, in my opinion, uh, a little bit early on the game where it was like, oh man, if this band existed, you know, a couple years later, it could have been, you know, a whole different story. Um, does that, does that sentiment that I share, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, mean not only mean something to you, but like, is that something that you're like, not like you could retrofit the band into different eras, but like, if you know you felt like you, oh man, if we existed in the 2010s, it would have been a whole different story, and not like the old high school football quarterback talking about their you know one game or whatever. But uh, you know, does that kind of resonate with you at all? No, totally. I think that's that's a uh, yeah. I think that's actually pretty spot on. You know, with both with both bands, you know, there wasn't really career aspirations with with either of them. You know, they were both done. Uh, you know, as hobbies, as, as things that just, that's what you did. You know, you're in your early twenties and you owned a guitar, you played in a band, you know, that's, that's, that was my, that was my social life was going to shows and playing shows and having band practice. And like, you know, it was, it was just what you did. And with, with Roy, you know, it was, 
kind of funny because it wasn't even really a serious band. It was, you know, the Varellen brothers, you know, just kind of indulging in their, you know, worship of things like the rentals and the breeders and, you know, just kind of doing these weird fuzzy, you know, like indie rock songs. And I weaseled my way on board and, you know, it was just like a recording project that we didn't even think was going to result in playing live shows, but we did some recordings and they somehow wound up on some message boards. And the next thing you know, like we have fuel by ramen saying that they wanted to sign us to this incubator deal through Island records. And like we were just kind of like, really? Like, I guess you have to like do this. Cause it's like kind of too good of an opportunity to pass up on, but it was also not like, <laughs> right. It wasn't what we wanted. It wasn't what we were trying to do at all. We were just going to write, you know, these kind of weird fuzzy pop songs in, in the basement and make, you know, little four track recordings of them and share them with friends. But it, instead we signed with Island slash fueled by ramen and, you know, they gave us a bunch of money to make a record and buy a van and the record didn't sell. And then they were like, well, yeah, we're not going to pursue option two, but you're happy to, you know, you can do whatever you want with, you know, future recordings, like, you know, you're released from contract. And it was kind of like the perfect, <laughs> like flirtation with a major label. Cause it was, right. it was like, Oh, we basically made the record we wanted. Uh, no one got involved you know, creatively with any of the decisions. And when it didn't sell, they're like, Oh, well that didn't work out. It's fine. So it was kind of weird and it like kind of ideal in a lot of ways. Um, and then at the same time, you know, with these arms are snakes, we, the same within the same 24 hours that Roy signed this deal with Island and fueled by ramen. We, uh, we signed with J tree, um, and that was like a no brainer just cause I loved the J tree roster and, you know, I'd heard nothing but good things about the way they, you know, dealt with their accounting and paid out their artists and, you know, Tim and Darren had kind of come out to Seattle to meet with, with these arms of snakes. And there's like, yeah, you know, if you sell like 10,000 copies, that tends to be, you know, that tends to be the line where after you sell 10,000 copies of a record, like you can make a living just touring and, you know, being in a band and, uh, that was super enticing. And, but, you know, that didn't wind up being the case, even though, uh, snakes did sell upwards of 10,000 copies of all of our records. But, you know, we struggled with, you know, constantly being in debt and, you know, probably toured too much and, you know, oversaturated the market and, you know, made some bad decisions in terms of, how much merch, you know, we need to bring on tours and things like that. And, you know, it quickly turned into a thing where it's like, Oh, this, this is, this is not a career option. <laughs> this is never going to be a career option. Yeah. I think, you know, I think within like the first year of touring, yeah. we were all sort of like, Oh yeah. Like having a job is totally fine. Like the, the goal isn't to not have a job, the goal is to have a job that like, lets you go on tour because it's so much nicer to come home and be like, all right, now I'm going to go to work and I'm not going to stress about money and I'm not going to be making decisions that are for the band that are based on strictly on what I think is going to generate revenue. Cause you know, those decisions rarely are like the interesting ones artistically. So, um, 
you know, it, it was a weird time where it was that, that post at the drive-in refused era where I think people felt like, you know, if you just worked hard enough as like a underground rock band, you know, you could, you could make a career of it too, just like those bands. But, you know, I don't know. I'm, I feel bad saying this as someone that's now a career musician, I guess, but it's, it's just like, it's the dumbest thing to aspire to because <laughs> like so few artists get there and the, the journey to try to be that kind of band usually winds up being such a shit show. It's like, don't, don't try to make a living being an artist, just be an artist, <laughs> be an artist and like enjoy your craft and like savor the independence that comes with not feeling like every decision you make has to be financially motivated. You know, that's, that's the important thing. And if it works out and you do become like a career musician, that's fucking awesome. Like that's like, I don't think there's any reason anyone should ever be bummed or ashamed of it. Like artists were in, in the nineties, you know, and stuff, but like, it's like, don't aspire. Right. Cause it's just like, it's a carrot on a stick, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it becomes, it becomes you, you step into the, the business aspect of it. And obviously the, you know, continual clash between art and commerce, it's difficult to be able to thread those needles. And that actually segues perfectly into, you know, what I feel like you've been able to accomplish with Russian circles. Cause even though, you know, that band stylistically, there's no quote unquote hope for, you know, mainstream success for a bunch of obvious reasons, but you guys have been able to continually craft, release music, tour, but not drive yourselves, in my opinion, into the ground to where, you know, you have whatever oversaturated yourself and then you're not able to exist in your own lives to be able to creatively come to the table with with some, you know, some new perspectives or whatever. So I, I'm going to guess that is something that did all of you guys kind of like come to the collective table with that sort of, not like you were able to articulate it when you were starting the band, but just that idea of like, Oh yes. Like we know we're going to pursue the band, but like there's going to be all these other things that we're pursuing as well. So it's hopefully they'll never like be all consuming where we can't do anything else. Are are you talking about this with, uh, with Russian circles or with, with, with which band? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, With Russian circles. Yeah. I mean, Russian circles, it's a little different because you know, initially the band was Mike, Dave, and, and Colin uh, was their original bass player. And uh, I came on for the second album. So, yep. you know, th- there was kind of already a lot of traction and momentum with uh, with the band before I was involved in any way. And it wasn't to a point where those guys were uh, living off their music. You know, they're both still working jobs. Uh, but, you know, pretty quickly after I joined on, uh, it got to a point where, you know, I think it was sort of more difficult to remain employed in addition to being in the band than to not, not be, if that makes sense. That didn't really come out very articulate, but it was harder to like work, work a job at home because um, we were just touring so much. Sure. And, you know, the, the band was based in Chicago, but I was out in Seattle and, you know, that, that meant, you know, anytime we were practicing, it was involved flying out to Chicago and things like that. So it's, it, it, it was with Russian circles where, you know, 
I kind of stopped working normal normal jobs on the side. And there was some overlap with these arms of snakes still being active and I was juggling both bands. So I was touring, you know, twice as much at that point. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. the, the dialogue for Russian circles is always kind of been, you know, like, you know, what would Fugazi do? Um, you know, what would, what would Mogwai do? You know, like when you see a band and they, they make it work and they seem like they're just doing what they want to do on their terms but haven't like made a bunch of compromises. Like, you know, what are their decisions that they're making? Like that's the way to approach it is, you know, a lot of times things get offered where it's like, well, that could, that could be like a really good move career wise, but it could also, I don't know, it could also (laughs) backfire. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, I don't know. I, I think, people can kind of tell when you're doing things just for financial reasons and it's, it's a bad look. So it's more important to, I don't know, just do what feels right and what feels tasteful and not get suckered into like someone telling you, Oh, this is going to be good for you professionally. Cause it's, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. You know, it's, it's really kind of as simple as that, you know? Um, so, you know, we've been sure about what yeah. we do. If it doesn't pass the sniff test. Yeah, yeah. We say no to things all the time. You know, we we are selective about what we do. And, you know, that, sometimes that might mean we make a little less money. But, you know, overall, I think it means that we're proud of everything that we present. And, you know, we we feel good about it. So we're, we're a lucky band. And I'm still kind of stunned that... Uh, you know, there's been enough attention paid to what we do that we can do this, you know, 17 years later. <laughs> uh, it's wild. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's also one of those things. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you had told me, it's like, yeah, uh, you're you're going to make a, a living playing music, you know, playing in an instrumental three-piece band that does long form, you know, heavy dissonant, you know, instrumental songs. It's like, really? That's, <laughs> that's the thing that's going to, you know, you're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Now somehow it works. So, you know. What's the, uh, yeah. Yeah. What's the, uh, you know, speaking just cause I, I find it usually entertaining and not from a, you know, bad direction, but just like the, you know, when you do get presented, you know, opportunities, whether it's with a tour or whether it's like, Hey, license your song to a commercial. What was uh, like, when I say that, what was kind of the, you know, funniest thing that you saw kind of come across your desk, you know, maybe from the Russian circles perspective or any other perspective that you can recall that was like, Oh, this is like, this is not a good fit and not even, from like a, a monetary perspective, but just like, why would you even ask us to do that? Yeah. I'm, you know, nothing immediately offhand. A lot of times it's just, you know, you get like, like, well, we did a tour with Mastodon. We did a couple tours with Mastodon and, uh, the second yep. U S tour we did with them, um, was sort of routed around a lot of festival dates. And, uh, you know, there were festivals that Mastodon was added to the invitation wasn't always extended to us. Cause you know, this was, you know, it's not their show. They're part of a festival lineup. So it's either the festival says, Oh, we want the whole package or they don't. Um, but every once in a while, you know, 
there would be an offer where it's like, Oh, do you want to, you know, Mastodon's playing this festival. Do you guys want to play too? And you kind of just like look at the other list of bands and it's like, Ooh, no, I think, I think we're good. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think we'll really benefit from playing at 11 AM on the, you know, the Doritos stage at the, you know, Rockstar energy drink mayhem tour stop, you know, being heavy. Sure. <laughs> sure. You know, it's just like, none of us are really that interested in, in, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to play a show that I know is going to be a bad show just because I think it's going to look good on paper. You know, that's just never <laughs> something that that's, that's not put yeah. forward. So, um, things like that mainly, but you know, there's, there's other weird little things. Like I, I was thinking about this earlier in our conversation when you were talking about old Fortuna, um, because we licensed that song for like a boat commercial, um, which is something that like, you know, in 1995 when we recorded it, someone had been like, Oh yeah. Like if someone came at you and asked, you know, to use this song to sell like sports boats, what would you say? I've been like, absolutely fucking not, you know, like that that's like selling out, like right. no way. But, and so, you know, when that offer came in, I think initially we were like, you know what, like that's, we appreciate the offer, but you know, like, no, <laughs> like that's just weird. Like we don't want to sell a song to a commercial, but, uh, the boat company wrote back and they're like, well, you know, if it makes you feel any better, it's like, we're a mom and pop company. We build everything by hand. We, we build like a hundred boats a year, you know, like it's, we're not like, we're not like a car company. We're like craftsmen that build like these boats and we, like your band and you know like we like the carmina barana so like we just thought it would be kind of cool you know and then like when when there was that like direct one-on-one you know conversation about it it's like oh okay well that's that's totally different you know (laughs) it's like if you're like actual yeah we get it yeah if you're like your own like you're you're an artist of your own kind like you're a craftsman you're you're building something by hand and you know you have some sort of connection to the hardcore world and you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's not even our song. It's, you know, it's a cover. So, you know, hearing that and having that kind of dialogue made us feel a lot better about being like, yeah, go, go ahead and use the song. Like that's, that's cool. Maybe, maybe someone who's buying a boat will also be like, man, that, that cover of the Carmina Barana is pretty cool. You know, you know, maybe that'll open their ears up to some other botch songs and that would be cool, but I'm not going to bank on that, but sure. You know, whatever. It's, it's yeah yeah weird, weird. we're not gonna we're not gonna reverse engineer that yeah <laughs> i don't think anyone becomes a botch fan you know <laughs> at, in, in the in the age bracket where they're also buying boats but you never know i guess it could happen major things yeah ab- absolutely <laughs> totally uh the last two things i want to hit on before i let you go was the um with with touring because you've experienced touring on a lot of different levels with a lot of different uh you know musical projects and bands and styles because you you know have painted with a pretty broad brush as far as your musical output is concerned how has your relationship with tour changed over time have you um I presume it's ebbed and flowed in regards to like you've really enjoyed it sometimes and then sometimes it feels like you're just you know running on the hamster wheel what you know talk me through that yeah i don't know it's tough i i, I enjoy touring I, I enjoy performing and you know that's something that 
um, I try not to take for granted because, you know, there's a lot of musicians out there who love everything about being in a band, but they actually don't like performing and, or they don't like touring or they don't, you know, they don't like some aspect of the process. And, and I enjoy all of it. You know, I, I enjoy being on stage. I enjoy writing and recording and I enjoy all the, you know, I enjoy loading in and out and setting up gear and all that stuff. Like I enjoy the, the road trip quality of, of, you know, being behind the wheel and playing your favorite records as you're driving from point A to point B. Like I, I like all that, but you know, there's definitely tours that are great and where you're like, Oh, this, yeah, this is why I do it. And then, you know, then you'll go on another tour and it's like, Ooh, this one is definitely not as good as the last one. And you know, it's, it's uh, it's hard when you have like the highs to to write out some of the lows, but you know, I think uh, I tend to approach it as you know, at the end of the day, you're you're I'm doing it for my own sort of selfish reasons, and that's that I like playing music, and you know, I like hearing my music in real time as I'm playing out of a PA, there's something just incredibly satisfying about that. And so if, even if the other circumstances surrounding the tour aren't ideal, you know, if there's, you know, low turnouts for a tour or if there's just some sort of drama going on, you know, in, in the tour party, you know, whatever it may be, it's, you know, it's never ideal, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's a bad experience. Like I don't, I don't think I've ever really come home from tour and like, wow, that was just a nightmare. And I wish it hadn't happened. Uh, so I'm, I'm fortunate in that regard. You know, it's, there's always been like some sort of positive takeaway from, from, uh, from every tour. Um, you know, all that said, it, you know, with COVID happening, uh, last year, it wasn't completely unpleasant to have a break from touring. Uh, we had gone uh, pretty hard on touring on our last album, uh, Russian Circles Guidance album, because we got invited to do three tours with Mastodon. So that was like a whole year's worth of touring um, where, you know, we weren't doing our own headlining things and we weren't writing new material. So, you know, you come out of a, a year of doing support tours and then it's like, well, you want to do like a victory lap and now you want to go back and, do your own shows to your own fans and to any new fans you might've gotten from all the opening slots. So, you know, it just made the whole touring cycle on that record, like so much longer and involved so much more touring. And, uh, I, with that, I was definitely, I was, I was ready for a break after that. Um, and, you know, I, I think on some level it'll be really exciting to come back and to, have it feel uh, like refreshed in a lot of ways. So, uh, you know, that's it, it, me really trying to find the silver lining out of a shitty two years, you know, that we've all had, but you know, I think there is some sort of benefit of sure of being re-energized and, you know, being, being excited to, you know, perform again. I think it's a, it's a, we're all, we're all stoked. And I'm, you know, I want to, emphasize that I, I wasn't burned out or, or bummed on anything that we did, but you know, it was, it was definitely like, Ooh, yeah. A year and a half off was nice. It was nice to like 
let some, you know, repetitive stress injuries kind of heal up, you know, to kind of get back on some better health habits and, you know, at least have one year at home to see the seasons change and kind of have feel sort of grounded. Um, yeah, that's something that I haven't really had a lot of opportunity to do in my adult life. And that was actually pretty nice. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I am excited to go back out on tour though. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's, uh, I mean that, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, Brian. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, you know, there is much, there there can be too much of a good thing. So, um, you know, I feel very lucky that I get to do something that I love, you know, you know, as a 44 year old dude, like it's, it's, I feel very grateful and very lucky, but yeah, it's, it's also nice to have a little break. So I'm not going to complain. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with the, the last thing with your, um, you know, your, the solo record you put out and that always has so many elements of you feeling, you know, more exposed as an artist because there's literally nothing to hide behind, (laughs) you know, it's just you putting yourself out there front and center, um, was, and since you have, you know, done so many different musical things and have always been a part of bands in general, uh, did you feel, and I know this kind of sounds like a hacky cliched question, but, you know, did you really, uh, I guess, go through the thought process of feeling more vulnerable and exposed from that perspective? Or was it basically like, well, I'm going to do this because it doesn't really necessarily fit into anything else that I want to accomplish with my music, my, the, the bands that I play with. Yeah. Um, I think again, it was another, you know, if there's a, I guess a constant theme through our conversation, it's, you know, aim low. <laughs> it's like, don't try to be a professional musician. You know, don't, don't pick the harder instrument, you know, like keep, keep your expectations as low as possible. Um, and, uh, run from there. So, you know, with the, with the torment and glory record, um, you know, it's, there's a bunch of songs that I've kind of been working on over the last 10 years or so. Um, not in any serious capacity, but just, you know, the, the things that kind of fall out of your hands when you're, you know, you walk up and pick up an acoustic guitar in the corner of the room, you know, it's like, there's certain things that your fingers kind of default to and those slowly turn into song fragments and then they turn into songs and then it eventually turns into a record. And, you know, the, the bits and pieces had kind of been laying around for a long time and they're usually shared with bandmates. Like I, I know Mike and Dave have heard pretty much everything off that record in some capacity over the last few years. And, uh, and I hadn't even realized it until uh, about a month ago. These Arms of Snakes are, are putting out like a double album of like rarities and B-sides and, you know, like rarities. I think I already said that, but yeah, basically like a, a compilation of yeah, okay. non, non-studio non album stuff. And uh, one of the things that came up was like a, an instrumental piece that none of us had any recollection of working on, but... Uh, like oh shit that's well we can't put this on the record because that's actually been repurposed and turned into the last song off the torment and glory record but apparently i'd shared that with the snakes guys um at some point so um 
you know, there are things that I just kind of wrote spontaneously and, you know, without any real formal idea of what would happen with them. Um, you know, I'd had some idea of doing like a little, uh, like cassette tape on a friend's noise label, um, and just doing kind of these deconstructed, uh, and sonically degraded folk songs with like a lot of surface noise and, and fuzz and distortion. Um, and so that was kind of the closest thing to like a, like a bigger picture in my head for what, what would eventually turn into this record. Um, but you know, I kind of wound up abandoning it just cause it didn't really come together the way I was hearing it in my head. And it wasn't until COVID came around that I was like, Oh, you know, it's, there's always that I can always, I, there's not a lot you can do musically right now. And, you know, even with writing Russian circle songs for our upcoming record, it's like, at a certain point, my hands are tied if, you know, all my homework's done and I've submitted everything and, you know, I'm just waiting for feedback and, you know, waiting for the drum tracks to come in or, you know, whatever, whatever holding pattern, you know, kind of happens when you're working collaboratively with people. Um, and I just wanted to stay busy. So I was like, well, you know, I have all these songs. I'll just try tracking them and maybe this cassette thing will finally happen. And um, once I started sharing songs with, my friend Ben Chisholm and he started helping out with mixing. I think he was kind of the first person to uh, sort of encourage me to take it a little bit more seriously. And I think he was sort of the first person whose affirmation felt kind of uh, not, not to say that other people who I shared the songs with ever seemed dishonest in their, in their feedback, but you know, I think it's like, if you're sharing a song with, with a bandmate, you know, they're not gonna be like, that sucks, dude. <laughs> like, you, totally, you totally blew it. You're, you're bad at guitar. You know, there are, you know, your bandmates are always encouraging. They're always like, Oh, that's great. You know, I'm not really sure if that fits the tone of the album. So, you know, maybe we're not going to use that. And, but you know, it's a great song. Good work. Um, so, you know, sharing it with someone like Ben, who's like an outsider who doesn't necessarily need to, to butter me up with compliments, you know, having, someone like that be like, no, these are, these songs are, they're good. Like, I think people will like them. Like you should, you should definitely at least try to do more than just making, you know, 40 cassette tapes. And, you know, I think more people would be interested in, in this than just sure. 40 people. So he kind of nudged me into sharing it with, uh, with Sergeant house and, you know, and with Sergeant house, it's like kind of one of those funny things where, you know, Kathy always kind of talks about like everyone's got a solo project. Like I'm not here to put out people's solo projects. I'm here to like put out like artists who are like dedicated to their craft. Like everyone has a solo project. I don't need to be involved in everyone's, you know, solo project. So when I sent it to Kathy, you know, there was this, you know, multi-paragraph thing being like, Kathy, I know you don't like solo projects. I'm sorry. I'm sending you this, but you are my manager. <laughs> so <laughs> you're like you at least want to know what I'm up to, so I'm just letting you know I'm putting out a cassette. Like here it is, you know. Ben encouraged me to share it with you. You know, I don't expect you to put it out. You know, blah 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 blah. And you know, Kathy was just like, "You're right. I hate solo projects. Like, there's there's no no point in doing solo projects." And then, you know, a couple hours later, it was like, "Yeah, this is too good for it to be a cassette. So we're gonna do like 500 copies on vinyl and blah 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 blah." It's like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that that works too like 
thanks, Kathy. You're like, let's let's go. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think if I, if I no, let's. I think if I had gone into it being like, I'm going to try and you know get Sergeant House to put this out as like a formal thing, like I think I would have been too. I think I went too self-conscious about it the whole time. And I would have, I think, I don't think it would have been as good of a record because I would have been approaching it differently. You know, when I was working on it and recording it in January, it was like, I'm not even sure if this is going to be like a tape or if this is just going to be like a, a practice run at like doing this more seriously at some point later on down the road or whatever. You know, So it's a, uh, it was, is aiming low and then, you know, being, happy with the results and yeah, just kind of letting it do its thing on its own, you know, not, not trying to force it on anyone and you know, not trying to make it seem like a, a bigger deal than it is, but you know, letting, letting the people decide if it, if it should be out there or not. Sure. Well, I, I sense a theme with that, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aim low. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Aim low, and then maybe you'll uh, maybe what, what do they say? They you know aim, aim for um, you know the moon and be happy landing at the stars or some cheesy aphorism like that. But yeah, I mean, you know it's like you know you come up in hardcore. It's like all my most formative shows were like tiny shows. You know, what, uh, you know I wasn't like someone who was was raised on the idea of like wanting to be the Rolling Stones playing at Madison Square Gardens. You know, I was I was inspired by like seeing undertow play to 90 people at the ground zero, you know, back in 1993 or, you know, seeing Fugazi play a yep. college auditorium, you know, in on the city diet of nothing tour in 91, you know, those were like the formative shows and all that stuff seemed like attainable, you know, like part of the allure of it was like, Oh, like I think anyone could go do that. Like I could go do that. And you know, so that's that was th- those were the goals, and those all seemed achievable. And then, you know, trying to take it anywhere beyond that was just you know the icing on the cake. You know, it was just like, oh well, if, if I can also you know put out a full length, like that's awesome too. You know, if I can, oh, if we get to go to Europe, like that's I never thought that would happen, so that's cool too. You know, but it wasn't like I don't know. The goal was never like like a, a number. You know, it was never like a, a a level that had to be attained. It was just world domination. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like if you make something and it, res- it, it, it people respond to it, that's a that's a positive thing, and that's that's all you can hope for. There you have it. Thank you very much, Brian, for hanging out on this show. It's uh, it's always appreciated when people want to spend uh, more than their allotted time with me because, you know, usually I ask for an hour and when people are fine to extend that time and, you know, I'm not bringing it up in advance being like, hey, is it, is it cool that we're running long? Like it just, the, the conversation flows and I really appreciate that. So thanks to Brian. Thank you to Stephanie, who is a good friend of mine and does great publicity work. She always brings great ideas to the table and I'm like, you know what, let's go ahead and do that. And that's exactly what happened with Brian. So, and plus, Check out Torment and Glory. Check out Botch. Check out Wretched Circles. I know that sounds like basic, but uh, hopefully you uh, may not have heard of one of those projects, and uh, you'll then now listen to it because that's the point of this whole thing. You know, document these people's experiences and then get you jumping off into other music that you might enjoy. 
Next week is a fun episode because uh, he's a friend of mine. His name is Carl Hensel. He runs the merch company called King's Road Merch, and he also plays in a band called Desperate Axe, which is a recent formation, but he also played in bands like Holding On and Martyr. He has, he's, he's a lifer. And uh, he came to me being like, hey, you know, I'm putting out this new record. It would be cool to, you know, appear on your show and do some publicity for it or whatever. And I was like, you know what? That's a really good idea, Carl. (laughs) I enjoy, I've always enjoyed you as a human. So I think uh, this will be a fun conversation. And it was. So if you are a hardcore and punk lifer and want to figure out ways to, you know, try to make this into (laughs) a real job or whatever, this is uh, this is how he did it, and it's not uh, advice by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just a, a path that one could maybe take. But ultimately, showing takes a lot of hard work. <laughs> so that's what we got next week. Thank you very much, and until then, please be safe, everybody.